Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. You may be seated tonight. And it's good to see everybody here this evening. God bless you. And I want you to be helping me to pray for the services on Sunday. God was here in a, a very real and special way this past Sunday. And we want to pray for him to come back. We don't need to take the presence of the Lord for granted. You don't need to do that in your own life, and we don't need to do it in this church. God comes where he's wanted. And I believe he comes in proportion to the level of desire uh, in the place where he's going to come. God visits and God shows up and, and looks around for somebody who's hungry, and that's what he and who he is drawn to. So uh, if you will think about that, put that on your prayer list, God, make me hungry for you. Make me hungrier for you than I've ever been. <clears throat> Amen. I'm going to talk to you tonight from uh, a subject that's a little bit different. And uh, last Wednesday was a little bit different. This is not really part two from last, um, excuse me, last Wednesday. But uh, it is something that is very practical that could help you, help me in our walk with God and living the overcoming victorious life God has for us and wants for us to live. How many know God wants you to walk in victory? Now, that does not mean that nothing bad ever happens. Bad stuff happens to good people. Jesus said it like this, it rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, the storms, the bad times, the undesirable circumstances come to everybody. Even those who are just, even those who are living in victory. The, the, the victory that I'm talking about is not tied to your circumstances. Uh, when I say the Lord wants us to walk in victory, that doesn't necessarily mean he wants us to uh, go through bad stuff and get rid of it as soon as possible and see it gone, never to see it again. That's not the life of victory that God intends for us to live. What that does mean, walking in victory, it means that no matter what the circumstances are and no matter how bad they may get, we still walk with all of God's blessings intact in our lives. That is the things that we cannot see. The joy of the Holy Ghost is still bubbling up in our heart. The peace of God that passes all understanding, which means it's peace when everybody else around us says, man, you shouldn't have peace in your life. But God gives us peace in the Holy Ghost and the love of God, and the list goes on and on, that in spite of the negative things that happen, we still walk in the fullness of our relationship with God and His love overflows and we are filled with happiness and fulfillment regardless of the circumstances. And God wants that to happen in every one of our lives. So we're going to talk tonight about another uh, subject that helps us to do that. We're going to talk about this, becoming emotionally whole, 
The word whole means complete, becoming emotionally whole or complete. Uh, how many believe that's what God's will is for our lives? He, he never intended when he gave us emotions to ride an emotional roller coaster through life, having ups and downs all the time. But he wants us to be emotionally stable and whole and content in him, again, regardless of what's going on on the outside in our life. Let me read you a story. One night, a young woman who had a very rough past. She had been involved in alcohol, drugs, and even prostitution. She felt the tug of God at her heart in a church service, an apostolic church service, Pentecostal. She responded to God's call and uh, was saved. She obeyed the gospel. The immediate change in her was evident. As time went on, she became a faithful member of that church and even taught Sunday school to young children. And in time, as time went by, she also caught the eye of the pastor's son. And eventually, uh, they began to make wedding plans. But that is when her problems or their problems began. About half of the church did not think that a woman with such a past as hers was suitable material for the pastor's son to be marrying. In fact, the issue became such a bone of contention that the church decided to have a meeting. Can you imagine have a, a business meeting on regarding who the pastor's son is going to marry? God help us. But as these people made their arguments and tensions increased, the young woman became very upset about all the things naturally that were being brought up about her sordid past. And uh, she began to cry. All of a sudden, the pastor's son stood up, and he wanted to put his two cents in. And I say it was about time. And he did the right thing. He said, quote, my fiance's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away all sin. Today, he told them, you've put the blood of Jesus on trial. Imagine that. So he asked this question, does it wash away all sin or not? And, of course, the whole church immediately, as they should have, had a reverse of heart and thinking, and many began to weep as they realized that they had actually been slandering the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I fear that too often, sometimes, even as Christians, uh, we may do that. We may bring up the past and use it as a weapon against our brothers and sisters. God forbid that happen. Uh, listen, if the blood of Jesus does not cleanse the other person completely, then it cannot cleanse us completely. So if that's the case, we're all in a lot of trouble. But I'm so glad that's not the case, that Jesus' blood covers it all. Amen. You know, this little story brings home uh, a point I want to focus on this evening and that is this, even though we may have the mindset that, uh, you know, what other people think about us doesn't really matter, it does. 
and it's in a way that's different from what you may be thinking. What other people think about us matters in this regard because what other people think about us affects our image of ourselves and of other people. In other words, what other people think of us, if we'll let it, will affect how we think about others and how we think about ourselves. And God cares about what we think about ourselves. And that's the subject tonight I'm going to talk about. We're going to flesh this out here tonight. Uh, what we think about us really should count, okay? Uh, and, and the reason why it should count and why it's important is because it is important to God. It's important what God thinks about us. And it's important that we think about us correctly the way God thinks about us. Now, if that sounds complicated, I'm going to break it down and get simpler. Let's go. Uh, becoming emotionally whole. Let me ask you a question. When you get up in the morning and get ready for your day, you uh, inevitably make your way to the bathroom, and sooner or later you're going to find yourself in front of a mirror. At least I hope you will. I wish to this day that, that every day I could get up in the morning and walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror and my hair have miraculously combed itself. But it's not going to happen, is it? I, 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 I would love to look in the mirror tomorrow morning and see that somehow my beard was shaved off all by itself without me getting involved. But that isn't going to happen. We have to go to work on ourselves, don't we? And we have to look in the mirror to see uh, what we see so that it can help us be what we should be. So if you look at the mirror in the morning and you don't like what you see, and I'm not just talking about what you see physically and not liking something about your physical appearance. I, I'm sure that all of us have had something about uh, what we see in the mirror, that is our physical appearance, somewhere down through our life that we would have changed if we could have. You don't have to say amen. I know you're in that boat with me. We all have been there. But I'm not just talking about what you see physically. I'm talking about your self-image, which isn't limited to your physical appearance. Your self-image, let's get our definition straight, includes the total you, your personality, your talents, your abilities, or lack thereof, your accomplishments from the past, your desires, your goals that you've set for yourself, and most importantly, your spiritual relationship with the Lord. Your emotional health, and God wants us to be healthy in every area of our lives, your emotional health is rooted strongly in your self-image. So are your relationships with family and with friends, with business associates, with coworkers. Your relationships are very strongly tied to how you see yourself, your self-image. In fact, uh, it's been proven psychologically or scientifically, whatever the right word is, that 
most of our behavior, how we live, is based on what we think we are and how we feel about ourselves. You say, well, pastor, that's not me. Oh, yes, it is. Let's go on. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Let's go to see what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about this thing called self-image. Verse number 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. Uh-oh. Uh Can you see it better up here? You'll just have to take my word for it. I'm reading it right. I'm the least of the apostles, Paul said, who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Listen to what he says about himself now. He's putting himself down. You think, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. And then he says, why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. I didn't do it, but it was the grace of God which was with me. Very important point here that Paul is making. He, he says, uh, I, first of all, I, I'm not worthy not worthy of what God's done in my life. Why? Because I persecuted. Did you know that Paul murdered? He had killed apostolic Pentecostal Christians. This was before he had the revelation of the gospel and got saved himself. But nonetheless, he did it. But he said, I was changed, and it happened by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says, a side effect of what happened was, you know, the Scripture said, I believe it was Paul himself wrote, all things work together for good to them who love God, who are thee called according to his purpose. Well, the good that came out of Paul being a murderer and murdering Christians was that he labored more abundantly than anybody else. It made him try harder. It, it, you know, I'm sure he knew he could not make up for those lives that he was responsible for taking, for sending them on to glory in heaven a little bit earlier than they would have without him having them killed. But he said, it, it, it got in my craw, and it did something on the inside of me. It made me work harder for God than I would have if I haven't, hadn't done those things. And then he says, but it's all done. Not by me, but really by God's grace that works in me. So, on the surface, Paul seems to be putting himself down, doesn't he? He appeared to be saying, uh, I'm nothing. Wow, that was quick, Brother Terry. He's good, isn't he? Good and quick and fast. He, 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 Paul is apparently saying, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, uh, I'm nobody. But if you read what he said... Uh, if you just stop at those phrases, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, then you're really taking it out of the whole context and saying the exact opposite of what Paul is actually saying. Paul really and actually had a very healthy self-image. Uh, this, this passage of Scripture is part of an argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, and, and they had been arguing about whether or not they should listen to Paul's words to them or should they listen to other prophets who just came by from time to time. 
So at the beginning of this 15th chapter, Paul reminds them that the gospel that he had preached to them resulted in their salvation. It was because of the gospel that he preached to them. They were saved on their way to heaven. And he reminded them of that. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And he says, this was witnessed by the apostle Peter and the other apostles and by more than 500 followers of Jesus. And even, Paul said, he himself. So what was he really meaning when he said, I am the least of the apostles? Well, he was saying correctly that he was last among those that he named that had witnessed the resurrected Christ and that all of those that he named who had witnessed the fact that Jesus was resurrected, he, Paul, spent the least amount of time with the resurrected Lord. You see, one of the qualifications for being an apostle, I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, we used to have debates from time to time, and the teacher would pick a, a subject that would be uh, really bring out uh, as much information and, and food for thought and get uh, us to thinking. And one of those debates was on the subject of whether, of who was the last apostle. There were 12. We know that the 12 disciples that followed Jesus would become and did become the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They had a, a gate named after them or have a gate named after them in heaven, the book of Revelation says. But we know that something happened to one of them, and he, he don't have his name on a foundation or a gate in heaven, and that's the, one of the 12 apostles. Judas. Judas Iscariot betrayed him, and so he lost his place in the group of apostles. He lost his apostleship. And so he had to be replaced. You read Acts chapter 1 and you see the disciples or those 11 that were left going through the process of picking somebody to take Judah's place. Uh, they ended up choosing two. It came down to two. And then it really seems carnal what they did. You know what they did? Go home and read Acts 1. You know what they did to pick who it would be? They drew straws. Lots. That's the same thing as drawing straws. They may not have used straws, but uh, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, in other words, basically. And uh, somebody tell me who won. Oh, we got a Bible scholar up here on the platform. That's right, Sister Sherry. His name was Matthias. But, but. Now, I believe that the Word of God is true, all of it's true, and God had His will be done in choosing who the apostle was. But Paul, who wrote half of the books of the New Testament, if you include the book of Hebrews, which most Bible scholars believe he did write Hebrews, even though his name's not on it. If you include Hebrews as his, he wrote in number exactly half of the books of the New Testament. He was, without a doubt, uh, a prolific soul winner, preacher, evangelist. He evangelized almost single-handedly. Well, he did single-handedly open the door 
uh, of salvation to the Gentiles in many Gentile countries throughout Asia Minor and Europe. Uh, and he makes a case for the fact that he is the 12th apostle that took Judah's place. And he didn't say it like that, I took Judah's place. But to, in order to be an apostle, one of those 12, there were certain qualifications they had to fill, and one of those was they had to be an eyewitness of everything Jesus did. So whoever it was that took Judas' place had to, like Judas and the other 11 apostles, been one of those men who followed Jesus around during his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry. Well, Paul didn't do that. But Paul said, and there are Bible scholars who agree with Paul and say he's really the, the 12th apostle. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those questions that you put in your book that you're going to ask the Lord when you get to heaven, but actually what's going to happen is it'll be of no consequence. You'll probably forget to ask him. At least I will. Uh, Paul was uh, first missionary, and, and, and there's certainly a strong case that could be made for him being the 12th apostle apostle that took Judah's place because after his conversion, he was carried away into the wilderness for three years where he said, and he only puts one line in one of the epistles, one of the New Testament books that he writes about this, he spent time with Jesus face to face in person, and he says that there Jesus imparted to him or showed him all of the events of his life, and the main qualification for being one of the 12 apostles is you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. And Paul said, I saw him uh, in my flesh through a vision. But anyway, Paul here seems to be kind of vacillating back and forth about how he looks at himself. He says, I'm, I'm the least of all the apostles, and he was correct in saying that uh, he was the last one to have witnessed or seen Jesus Christ after he erect, uh, arose. And he did spend the least amount of time with Jesus of all the other apostles. But he said, I am what I am by the grace of God, which was an apostle, a born-again believer, a preacher, an ardent follower of Jesus Christ, and even though Paul had spent a limited amount of time with this church at Corinth that he's writing these words to, he labored hard, uh, thousands of hours, to witness the Lord Jesus to other people. And God's grace, he says in this letter to the Corinthians, is continuing to work in my life, he says. And God is doing great things through me. So this powerful positive statement from Paul kind of counteracts the theory that Paul was putting himself down when he says, I am the least of the apostles. He has a strong character and a positive self-image. Paul wasn't putting himself down. He was simply stating the facts about his life and the most important of those facts in his opinion, was that everything that he was and everything that he did was perfectly in line with God's saving grace. So that leads me to make a statement. Ultimately, 
your self-image is linked to who you are in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, it's linked to the kind of relationship you have with Jesus. If you, let's talk about somebody who's not even saved. If you have no relationship with Jesus, then it would be very difficult for you to have a strong, healthy self-image. But if you have a relationship with him, you have, think about this now. It's very simple, but it's important. If you have a relationship with Jesus, even if it's very simple, very immature, you at least to some degree have accepted the fact that God loves you and that he loved you so much he came to die for your sins on a cross so you could live forever with him. Your self-image and your relationship with Jesus are uh, tied together so strong. Let me ask you another question, several questions. Do you know tonight with certainty, are you convinced that God loves you? Are you convinced that he loves you infinitely and unconditionally and eternally? If you have obeyed the gospel, been born again of the water of the Spirit, you are his child forever. You can't uh, be unborn. Think about your own children or grandchildren. Once they're born into the family, they may leave the family of their own will or they may get kicked out against their will. But by blood, they are still a part of the family. Now, you may turn your back on God after getting saved and being born into the family. At some point, you may decide you don't want to do this anymore and be lost forever and bust hell wide open, as the saying goes. But you're still God's child. You're just a disobedient child. You may spend forever in hell, but you can't quit being a child of God. So you need to remember that. And God loves you and always will love you. God, do you know with certainty, absolute positive tonight, that God is ready to forgive you of all your sins and trespasses against him and anybody else at any given point in time? Do you know that God's ready to forgive you if you need it? Do you know tonight that Jesus Christ puts so much value on your life, just your life, that he gave his life so that you might live forever with him in heaven? How certain are you of that tonight? You see how your self-image, what you think about yourself, is tied to your relationship with the Lord? Let's go on. Do you know tonight, without a doubt, that you are in a process of being transformed every day, maybe a little bit, but more and more being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ as the Holy Ghost works on you? If you can say yes to those questions, then you've got a great head start in having a, a, a healthy self-image. 
that God wants you to have. Don't let the devil succeed in getting you to believe the lie that you're supposed to put yourself down. Now, what you are that's good is because of God and His grace. But don't get the two mixed up. You are what you are by God's grace, and what you are is great because God made you that way. You're His kid. You know, it's very unfortunate that there are some people, even people who believe that Jesus died on the cross for them and, and that God loves them and they are forgiven before God today and, and, and they are being transformed into uh, the, the wholeness of Jesus Christ. Yet sometimes, unfortunately, some of those people have difficulty loving themselves. God wants you to love yourself. He loves you. Friend, if God loves you and has forgiven you, then you should love yourself. Why, Pastor? Because God says you are valuable in His sight. And the Holy Ghost is, is continually working on you to bring you to that place of perfection and refinement spiritually. You, you've got to understand you are a beloved, highly cherished child of God's. And that's the way he wants you to think about you. Now, here's the catch. Just like nobody can force you to serve God, nobody can force you to accept that Jesus died for you and, and you need to appropriate his death and his blood to your life by obeying the gospel and being saved. Nobody can force you to do that. Nobody can make you make that choice. Well, the same is true about whatever picture you're painting on the canvas of your life about how you see yourself. Nobody can force you to believe what is true about you the good things that are true about you, that you belong to God. And he thinks a whole lot of you, and he is working on you. He's polishing you and sharpening you. He's got you on the, his potter's wheel every day, his foot making that wheel go round and round. As his hand is on your life every day, if you'll let it, shaping you, making you better, making you more like he wants you to be. This is what the Word says, 1 John 4, verse 10. If this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us first and sent His Son to be the propitiation or substitute for our sins. Next verse, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Uh, let's go to Colossians 1. Just I'm going to read real fast. Verse 9, also, since the day we heard it, do not cease. We don't stop praying for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us 
to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of love in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. As a Christian, as a child of God, our worth to us in our own eyes, our self-image has to flow from Jesus. It flows from Jesus Christ. In other words, we are worth something. We're worth a lot because he makes us to be worthy. And he made us worthy, showed us how much we're worth by the price that he paid to save us, to purchase us at Calvary. He paid the awful, terrible in physical terms, yet beautiful and wonderful price of his own life and not just dying instantaneously, but a horrible, terrible, torturous death racked with pain and agony for hours. That's how much he paid for you and I. And that's how much we're worth to him. And so we need to be worth that much to us. And to not do so is to insult him. You insult God when you put yourself down because you're putting him down because you're putting down what he made you and you're putting down what he paid to purchase you. There's a scripture in Proverbs that says, It is not, it is not, saith the buyer. But when he goeth his way, he boasteth. Perfect example of that is you walking into used car lot and you telling the owner or the salesman as you're looking at a car, oh, that's a pile of junk. Why would I want to buy that? What you're doing is you're trying to drive the price down, right? It is not. It is not. That's not worth $1,000. That, uh, my goodness, I don't see how you could ask a penny over 500 for that piece of uh, junk. It is not. It is not putting down what you're trying to buy, saith the buyer. But when he goes his way, after, he gets it for, after you get it for $500, you go down to your friend and you say, Wow, look what I got. For 500 bucks, can you believe that? They wanted 1,000. It's worth 1,500, but I only had to pay 500 for it. When he goes his way, then he boasteth. You know what? Sometimes we do that with God and our friends and our family and our loved ones. When we say, oh, they're not much. They're not worth that much. They're not worth me spending the time that I've been spending trying to work with them and get them in church. They're not worth the price that I think I'm going to have to pay to somehow reach them for Christ. Don't ever, ever devalue a soul because that is crucially and terribly insulting to God. Because it's telling him the price you paid at Calvary for that soul wasn't worth you doing that for them. 
I'm so glad it was worth it for me. And if it's worth, if it was worth Jesus doing what he did for me to be saved, then it was worth everybody for him to do that, to save them. Uh, <clears throat> let me mention just a second or a minute the importance of uh, a parent's word. Did you know that children draw much of their self-image from their parents? Uh, to a great extent, the, the parent has an ability to give a child a really good self-worth and a positive self-image. Uh, that is based in large part, now not 100% and not always, but most of the time, a child's self-image, what they think of themselves, in large part is based on what that parent thinks of that child. And as parents, believe you me, we let the child know how we feel about them. We may not think we are, but every day we do that. And, and so if you, it's possible, if you or I have a poor self-image today, you need to recognize that you could have been taught that self-image, that poor image of yourself from one or both of your parents. Now, I hope that's not the case, but we need to recognize that it is possible that, that your parents and other people who had strong influence over you in your early childhood, they could have instilled that in you, a poor self-image. But let me, let me stop here and look at the other side, the flip side of that coin. It is counterproductive. It's not really a good thing to blame your parents or your teachers or others in your childhood for what you are today and what you do today. For we all grow into adulthood and we have the power of choice, don't we? Uh, and I venture to say this. In most cases, parents don't mean to give their children a poor self-image, a negative image of themselves. Sometimes it just... It just happens uh, without them really intending to do it on purpose. But regardless, as an adult, you can make new choices. You can choose to believe the truth about what God says about you in his word, and especially what he says about you as his beloved child that he bled and died for, instead of believing somebody or something else that puts you down when you were growing up as a child. Uh, you need to forgive your parents, if that's the case, for their failure to, to, to put in you a good self-image. And just forgive them. They may not even still be here on earth, but you still need to release them to God and forgive them if that was the case, if they did that to you growing up. And you need to move forward in your life in God and accept what your heavenly Father has to say about you. Even if every parent that ever lived was a, a, an expert, just a, a master at putting positive self-images in their children, every child nonetheless would eventually reach the place in their life where they have to face the fact of their own personal sin nature. 
and that can be a major blow to somebody's self-image. Now, we understand from the Bible that God allows us to feel guilt over sin to motivate us to change the situation. I've said this several times, guilt that comes to you for things you have not repented of, that is the conviction of God, and that's a good thing. The Bible says that it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Nobody, you or me or anybody else, will ever or has ever repented without God giving them the understanding that they need to repent, or they would never repent in the first place. And so it is a gift from God, the act of repentance. We're not doing God any big favor when we repent. He already knows we're a sinner. He already knows that we've disobeyed Him. But He gives us the opportunity to make things right with Him by repenting, and He does that by convicting us, letting us feel guilty for our sins, we feel guilt. We feel stricken in our heart. The Bible, King James Version, uses the word uh, <clears throat> on the day of Pentecost. They were pricked in their heart when Peter preached, uh, like a knife, sticking it in your ribs. Hurts. Now, that's not physically. That's happening, happening spiritually and emotionally. But God allows that pain to come to us to lead us to repentance. That's called conviction. Once we ask forgiveness, the Bible says if we do it sincerely, then God's forgiven us. Not only has he forgiven us, he's forgotten the sin. If we feel guilty for that sin from that point on, if we have truly repented, that is truly sincerely ask God for, for his forgiveness and ask him to cover that sin with his blood and made uh, a commitment to him and to yourself that you're going to from this day forward do everything you can to abstain from that sin, that is true repentance. If you feel guilt about that sin that's in your past from that moment forward, then you can rest assured it's not God and his conviction. It is guilt coming from Satan, and that's called condemnation. And the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. When you get saved, God doesn't want you to have to put up with, as a part of your self-image, the condemnation for past sin. It can tear your self-image down. What should your self-image be? It should be that you're clean, you're whole, you're sinless, you're spotless, you're a part of the bride wearing garments of white on your way to a marriage ceremony where you're going to marry Jesus and live with him forever and ever. So, we need to face the reality that sometimes our self-image uh, is, is coming from sources that uh, really aren't to be believed. I, I can imagine Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned felt, felt it, it was probably extremely difficult for them to accept that they were no longer perfect. Let's face it, before that, they were perfect. They lived in a perfect world. If sin had not entered the picture, if they had not disobeyed God and sin, they would have lived forever in a perfect world. 
God is going to restore this world and us back to that state of perfection someday after he gets sin out of the way. Boy, I hate the devil, and I hate what he does. I hate sin and what comes from it. But uh, even people with healthy self-esteem and a healthy self-image have to face this same reality. Right now, nobody is perfect. We all still have that sin nature within us. When we get saved, when God gives us a new nature, that is his nature, when he gives us the Holy Ghost, he doesn't take the old one away. We are made a new creature, the Bible says. But he gives us another new nature, his nature, to help combat or fight against and put under subjection the old sinful nature and put it in its place and keep it there until we can get out of this body at death or the rapture, whichever comes first. Then when we get rid of this body, see, the, the, the sin nature is in the flesh. The flesh nature is in the flesh. It's in this body. That's why I'm so glad Scripture says God's going to give us a new body. And the new one will not have a sin nature in it. We won't have to fool with that stuff. But in this life, even, even if we have a healthy self uh, image of ourselves, which we ought to have, which God wants us to have so that we can live in that peace, we need to remember that we are still and always will be in need of a Savior. We're still in need of the presence of the Holy Ghost in our lives to continually be transforming us into what God wants us to be, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So we can't blame our parents when we don't have a, a positive self-image. And the flip side of that is we, we shouldn't really attempt to blame anybody else for the sinful nature that we all have as a part of our birthright. We must accept full responsibility for our self-image. So let me stop right now as I kind of bring this to a close. At least we're moving in that direction. Uh, with, let me pose another question to you. Do you, don't answer out loud, do you feel challenged tonight by or about your self-image? Um, let me give you some things to think about. A person with a good, healthy self-image is able to accept both the good and the bad things about himself or herself. And when I say bad things, I mean the unchangeable bad things. Um, your looks, your appearance, your lot in life regarding uh, perhaps your education or your finances. Many of us here tonight uh, have reached a place in our life where that's, those things aren't likely to change. Uh, a person with a good self-image accepts the things that are not going to change. And I'm not talking about bad things that God does want us to work on and allow him to change in us, okay? Things like uh, the fruit of the Spirit and living our lives, bearing the fruit of a Christian, being uh, something that God can be proud of and say, that's my kid, he's living the way he's supposed to live his life or she's living the way she's supposed to live her life. A person with a good self-image uh, is going to be open to having 
the best possible relationship with God that they can have. In other words, if you've got the proper self-image, then you're, want, you're going to desire to draw as close to God as you can. Because it's a poor self-image that the devil tricks, uses to trick some people into saying, well, uh, I don't want to get close to God because I know what I'm like. And that's a lie. A person with a good self-image expresses love freely, willingly. Isn't that the way God is? That's the way he wants us to be. But we always do that. We express love within his constraints, his rules, his word. A person with a good self-image uh, is going to be willing to expose his or her innermost feelings, especially to God at the appropriate time and place. A person with a good self-image uh, is going to be confident of God and God's ability to work in our life and through our life. And that means acknowledging all the time, acknowledging that God is a source uh, of our ability and the source of uh, everything good that we have and everything good that we do. It's all in Him. He's the one undergirding and supporting our every effort to live right and to talk right and to do right. And a person with a good, healthy self-image, the way God wants us to have, knows how to treat the failures that come along in their life that they commit and learn from them and move forward, repent, ask forgiveness, and move on. That's the way God would have it be. Here's what the Bible says, Philippians 4 and 8. We ought to think on certain things and not other things. Here's what we should think about. These things should be in our mind. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise to God, think on these things. Let's move on to 2 Corinthians 13. Verse 11 is similar to that. Being come complete. That's what perfect means. It means complete in God. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I'm going to close tonight uh, by giving you just a few things that um, work against, and they can even destroy a, a positive, healthy self-image. Let's talk about four of them. Number one, and these are traps. Uh, remember now, your self-image, which is to be in line with what God thinks of you, is, is that thing that gives you a sense of worth. Uh, a sense that you're valuable to God and you're valuable to the kingdom of God. And when you have that, when you have a good self-image, then you are more willing to take on the work of God's kingdom. That's important. As a pastor, I've seen that in people's lives. Many times people who don't want to get involved in ministry around the church it's because, and they may or may not know about this, usually they don't, somewhere inside of them, they're having problems with their relationship with the Lord. And it could have to do with their self-image. 
So there's at least five things that can result when your self-image takes a hit and the devil is successful in getting uh, your self-image to tear it down in your sight. So you need to avoid these things. These are traps that will keep you from being fully effective in serving God. Number one is the trap of guilt. We talked about that. Even after you are forgiven by God, uh, then you have the potential to commit sin. Okay? I've never known anybody that from the point they got up from the altar after talking in tongues, receiving the Holy Ghost the very first time, or climbed up out of the waters of baptism, who from that point on never sinned. Never known anybody like that. And you haven't either. So the devil knows that, and he uses that, or at least he tries to. Uh, because we have the potential to sin, then with sin always comes guilt. So uh, here's what you don't want to happen. You don't want to let that guilt build up into a mountain of guilt. Uh, what you want to do is go to the Lord every time. As soon as you're aware that you've done something you shouldn't have done and ask God for his forgiveness and ask him for his help to not do it anymore. And if you don't do that, the guilt is going to stay there and it's going to grow. And the more you feel guilt, the more you begin to question how can God bless me, and how can God use me now? And our self-image begins to disintegrate and deteriorate. And if you continue to let this guilt build up and don't ask forgiveness, then you can become so overwhelmed by that guilt that you are frozen. You become immobilized, paralyzed, and ineffective for God. That's certainly not the will of God. That's why I mentioned... Uh, Maybe it was Sunday or last week, I don't remember. Recently, within the last week or so, you need to live a repented life. I repent every day, even if I can't think of something I did wrong. The writer said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. I pray like this, Brother Kenny, Lord, forgive me and deliver me from every sin and every weight, whether it's easy uh, or not whether it besets me easily or whether it's hard. It has to catch up with me. John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So continually ask God for forgiveness. Don't accumulate guilt in your heart. Number three. Uh, no, I'm sorry, number two. The second trap is the trap of this may come as a surprise to some, overachievement. If you attempt to do it all, either because you just have that in you, you're driven to achieve, that's a part of the way God made you, or maybe you don't trust other people to do it right. So you'd have to do it. Either way, you run the risk of exhaustion physically and spiritually. And when you collapse in exhaustion, you've got to face the fact that uh, you haven't been able to do everything you thought you could or wanted to. 
And that can lead to discouragement. And discouragement makes your self-image take a huge blow. Don't go there. The best way to stay out of the trap of overachievement is ask the Lord every day what He wants you to do that day. It goes back to prayer and the model prayer. Jesus said, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I pray that prayer every day, every morning. Today, God, let your will be done in my life, the lives of my family, my church family, all day. And you need to pray that prayer. Uh Learn how to uh, organize and administrate if you need somebody to help you do that just with your own life. Learn how to break large tasks down into smaller tasks and so on so that you make sure in your daily schedule, in your weekly schedule, you're reading your Bible, studying it, you are praying, uh, and you're getting sufficient sleep and rest. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created in Christ to do good works for Him, to be involved in His kingdom, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them before you were ever born. God had your life already mapped out. He had the blueprint in fine detail of the life that you were to live, including what you were to do for his kingdom. And it would behoove you and I to find out what that is and get after it. Number three, the third trap is the trap of criticism. You know, people who are willing to listen to Every bit of criticism that people bring against them, uh, they're, the, they're usually the kind of person that takes it to heart, and uh, that's usually the kind of person that has this need for others' approval. Listen, every, everybody's not going to like you. Everybody's not going to approve of you and everything that you do. In the final uh, scope of things, there's one person you need to be uh, concerned about that you get their approval. And who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. A and his approval is based on not just what you do or don't do. It starts in the heart. It starts with your desire level, your desire to follow him and live the way he wants you to according to to his word. It's not just based on your accomplishments and your achievements and what you get done, your level of income. If you really seek to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and serve the Lord, then you have God's approval. And the other stuff will work itself out. Listen, don't listen to people who continuously knock you down. That's not the will of God. I read something recently. I really like it. Let me see if I can remember it. They said, don't take advice or, or don't take criticism from somebody you wouldn't take advice from. That sounds pretty good to me. Don't listen to people who criticize you no matter what you do. That kind of criticism is a tool of the enemy, like a hammer trying to hammer your self-image down. Now, 
I'm not saying that you should not get wise counsel and advice from people. We all need that. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is much safety. You can't do this thing called life on your own. But be careful who you take advice from and counsel from. Amen. Is that person that's giving you counsel and advice, is their motive and desire to make you a better person according to their standards or according to God's standards? That's important. Romans 14, verse 19. Therefore, follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Finally, number four, as our musicians come, traps that can keep us from having the right self-image is the trap of comparison. And this one's very close to the trap of criticism. They're brothers or sisters. Some people continually gauge and evaluate their performance by comparing themselves to other people. Don't do that. You don't compare yourself with somebody else, whether it's their prayer life, their preaching ability, their ability to teach a Bible study, how many people they bring to church in a year, how much money they make. You could go down the list of everything spiritual and everything carnal. You don't compare yourself with others. You compare yourself with what God wants you to be and what God wants you to do. Amen. Jesus was our role model, wasn't he? And uh, we are to look at him, the author and the finisher of our faith. This relationship with him through this life on earth, he began it in our life. And he, I think Peter said, is able to do a complete work to keep us until We reach that day when this life is over and our life is complete. Jesus Christ is the only perfect man who ever lived. He's the only one who's God and we're not. And none of us is ever going to be perfect like he was. But are you yielding to the Holy Ghost working on you? you? Are you more like you should be this year than you were this time last year or are you the same person today that you were this time last year it's important that you think about these things you need to grow in God towards being emotionally whole and well let's stand together I said five, there's one more trap, and it's one I've talked about significantly lately, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, just mention it, and that is the trap. Remember, we're talking about being emotionally whole and having a healthy self-image, looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves the way God sees us. That comes from several different things. But it will not come if we fall into the trap of going against this book. Scriptural error. We've got to live this thing called life God's way. And the only way we can do that is by doing it the way it says to do it in the Bible. 
in his word. Praise God. Some people, some people, uh, and I don't have time to get into this, but some people actually do read the Bible, but they misinterpret the scriptures. They read them incorrectly, or they've been taught the scriptures incorrectly by somebody else. And so their self-image suffers from it. You are, this evening, you are a special person. You are the only one exactly like you because you're the only one of you that God made and ever will make. And it's exciting and it's wonderful and it's marvelous if you will go after the pattern and the example that God has given you to go after and live the life he wants you to live and 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 if you're trying every day to become the person he wants you to become and strive to be then you're going to be okay you're going to be all right praise god let's bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer let's close tonight this service by praying god help me to be who you want me to be and let me see myself the way you want me to see myself God you're so good to me I love you tonight Jesus I thank you for imparting to us your word this evening help us to understand just a little bit better this thing called life your way living the life you want us to live God with all of the many blessings and the good things that are ours the blessings that you are able to pour out upon our life when we do that when we look at ourselves the way you do and when we seek to become who you want us to become hallelujah oh make that our number one desire and priority in this life Lord to be who and what Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. Calvary Church is located at 406 North 44th Street in Mount Vernon, Illinois. Service times are Sunday school at 1 p.m. every Sunday, except the last Sunday of each month, and worship service at 2 p.m. Also, we have an all-church service at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Calvary Church is affiliated with the United Pentecostal Church International. Thank you, and have a blessed day.